Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. I think I should get some uh, extra brownie points for being here today at all. Uh, my wife is in Pennsylvania. She, uh, well, she's directing a wedding today. My son-in-law's sister is getting married, and my daughter called to my wife and begged her to come because if my wife didn't come, my daughter would have to do it. So she's up there directing the wedding, but I had two grandsons sleeping in my house last night. So I got them dressed for church this morning and fed and diapered and all of that and made it on time. Kind of impressive, isn't it? So I have had a little practice, yes. Last week, we started chapter 6 of the book of Mark. We talked about Jesus sending out the 12, and then there was somewhat of an interruption in the story. Remember, he sent them out two by two. He told them, don't take any extra clothes, don't take any extra food, and then he sent them out. And then there was this digression regarding the fate of John the Baptist, you remember that Herod had had John the Baptist arrested because John the Baptist had been commenting in public that Herod's marriage to Herodias was not a legal valid marriage because Herod had stolen, taken Herodias, and I say stolen, I think Herodias went of her own free will, uh, from his brother. And so he had complained, but Herod didn't want to do anything to John the Baptist because, first off, he enjoyed listening to him. He feared him, which was an interesting discussion that we had. So he just kind of kept him locked away. Then there was this dancing scene that we talked about very briefly, and it ends up with John the Baptist getting his head chopped off. There's an interesting discussion in the other Gospels that I'd like to allude to for just one moment before we pick up the narrative in Mark chapter 6 regarding John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is different than the Apostle John who wrote the book of John. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. There are those who say he was the last Old Testament prophet, he had come to proclaim the coming Messiah. And as Jesus started rising in influence, John the Baptist's influence started waning. And John the Baptist says, that's okay. That's okay because he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist knew what his mission was. Then there was this other incident where John the Baptist sent a group of his disciples to Jesus. And he sent that group of disciples to Jesus to ask them this one question. Are you the Messiah or should we wait for somebody else? Now, there are those who believe that this indicates a lack of faith on John's part. John was in prison and John was beginning to have doubts. Was this really the Messiah? And you know, there's nothing really wrong with that idea. I accept the fact that all of us have gone through what has been referred to as the dark night of the soul, where we doubt that which we believe. And you know what? God's okay with that. But there is a different idea 
that says John sent his disciples to ask Jesus because John knew that John was going away and those disciples needed someone to go to. So I happen to believe that John was sending the disciples to Jesus to prepare those disciples for John's exit from the scene. But as I said, I'll take whatever interpretation you like. But when these disciples showed up to Jesus, Jesus simply said, what does the prophet say? The Messiah is going to heal the sick, raise the dead, feed the poor, free the prisoner, all these things. And he says, that's what I've done. By his actions, Jesus had demonstrated that he was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy regarding the Messiah. So, we'll stop right there with John the Baptist and pick up in verse 30 of chapter 6. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. What we have here is the debriefing, okay? We ha if we were having a uh, discussion to future ministers, we would talk about Jesus' leadership style of sending them out two by two, preparing them for the task, giving them the authority for the task, telling them what to do. And then when they come back, he says, how did it go? You know, if you send somebody to do something, when they return, you ought to inquire about how well it went. And good things happened. The disciples, under the authority of, that Jesus had given them, were able to cast out demons, were able to heal the sick, were able to call people to repentance. Good stuff. But remember, the parable of the soils that we talked about weeks ago. Whenever the gospel is spread, there are going to be those who respond and there are going to be those who don't respond. There's going to be those who respond but fall away. There's going to be those who respond who it's not going to last very long. And we have to assume that that is what happened when the disciples went out. So when he's debriefing them, this guy's saying, yeah, I did great things. And this guy said, I got run out of town. And Jesus had told them that that was a possibility. Jesus had told them that if you go into a community and they reject you, take the dust off your feet, knock it off, go to the next town because there's plenty of towns to go to. He had prepared them and he had encouraged them about what they needed to know and do. So he's debriefing them and, it, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. At the end of a difficult task, at the end of a new task, even if it turns out great, Jesus understands you need to get away and you need to rest. We see this in the lives of a lot of Old Testament prophets and Jesus himself, that after a major event, what we often see is a bout of depression, Jesus didn't have that problem. But you know, when Elijah has his big thing with the prophets of Baal, he's as bummed as can be after it's over. Okay? That's a natural tendency. It's a natural tendency to exert effort and then 
And that's okay. So Jesus says we need to go to a desolate place. I think that word desolate is fascinating because it means a barren, dry, away from. If you look at different translations, they try to translate it much nicer, a quiet place. And that's good. Quiet places are good. But the word is desolate. Get away from everything else. You remember we had a brief discussion uh, back in chapter 1 when Jesus got away. And we talked about the three S's of the spiritual life. Silence, solitude, and simplicity. They're demonstrating the solitude part of it, even though they're going together. Now, there's a problem. The problem is it's not going to work in this situation. Let's keep going. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Okay? They got in the boat. Remember, they're up at the Sea of Galilee. They're kind of bouncing around the Sea of Galilee. They go over to this side and they cast out the demons. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Then they go back over to this side and this event occurs. So they're around that northern end of the Sea of Galilee region. But there's a problem. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They tried to get away from the crowd, but the crowd saw them. So it's like this, okay? They're getting in the boat to go away to a desolate place. And somebody says, ah, I know who those are. And they start running along the seashore. And as they're going, they're gathering people as they go. You know, you run through the little fishing village and you say, I'm going after Jesus. And they're all running. And here's Jesus out in the boat, leisurely going across the... And here they come. And by the time Jesus lands, there's a crowd. The thing that he didn't want. Now, think about this for a moment. When you've had a major spiritual event, you need a rest. But sometimes God has other plans. He does. God has other things in mind that don't allow you, don't permit you to do that. Now, remember, in just a few verses, Jesus is going to do what he knows needs to be done. He's going to get away and he's going to pray most of the night by himself. So he's going to get there, but at this point, the crowd shows up. And here's the question. What are you going to do when the crowd shows up? Forget the crowd, okay? You and I are probably never in our lives going to have people running around the seashore trying to keep up with us. Let's just face it. But there are going to be times in your life where you're tired, you're tired and you want to be left alone. I don't know about you. I am an introvert. I know you find that hard to believe. 
My dad was the biggest extrovert I've ever met in my life. He would meet anybody and we'd get invited over to their house for dinner. It was weird. I learned how to be an extrovert. But you know, at the end of the day, after this is over, after this class is over, I'm going to go hide at home. I am. I had a meeting one day at work. I had a wonderful boss, wonderful boss, but she loved to talk. That was the way she thought. I mean, people are that way. So we were going to have a big meeting. So we had a pre-meeting to discuss what was going to happen at the meeting. But it actually gets worse than that. We had a pre-pre-meeting because we had the company people talk, and then we had our subcontractor come in to plan what to do when the customer showed up. And then the customer left, and we had a meeting with our subcontractor, and after the subcontractor left, we had a meeting just us. And guess who did 90% of the talking? Me. It was my job to lead these discussions. So by that final meeting, I'm drained. I am, and my boss and another guy in the group are just going at it. And I'm going, don't you want to just go sit in your cubicle and hide? And they finally said, Kyle, is there something wrong? <laughs> no, I'm just tired. We know that we need to rest. So the question is, how do you respond when Jesus drops something else in your path? I had gone on a business trip and was flying home late at night, and I was tired. And I sat next to a guy from India who tried to convert me to Hinduism the whole way home. <laughs> and you know what? At first, I didn't want to talk to him. I really didn't. I was tired. But guess what? God had put this person in the seat next to me. How do I respond when God puts someone in the seat next to you? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. How does Jesus respond when God drops a crowd in the midst of his retreat, he responds with compassion. Now, what is compassion? Well, we know what compassion is. It's the opposite of getting angry at them. It is the opposite of getting ticked off because your rest time has been invaded by some other task. And why did he have compassion on them? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. I have spent about this much time in my life with sheep, okay? When I was growing up, my grandmother would rent out some of her land and people would put sheep on them, okay, to graze. I mean, grass is all that was growing on the thing. And we would go out there and try to ride the sheep. It never worked. Sheep have the reputation of being rather stupid. They need 
guidance. They need someone to show them which way to go. And the scripture, when it wants to talk about us, doesn't use some exalted animal as the example. It uses sheep. Why? Because we're kind of stupid. God had appointed shepherds to the nation of Israel. God had given them the law. God had given them people who were trained in that law. And those people who were supposed to be the shepherds were trying to kill Jesus because he was interfering with their plans. We see this throughout the history of Israel where God is sending shepherds, either literal shepherds or metaphorical shepherds, to try to guide the people. What did Moses do for 40 years in the wilderness before he started leading the Israelites? He herded sheep. What did David do before he became the king of Israel? He herded sheep. Now, we could have a long discussion about whether learning to work with sheep is a prerequisite for becoming a leader. <laughs> All I know is it probably wouldn't hurt. What do you see when you see the crowd that doesn't accept Jesus? Do you get mad at them? How could you be so stupid to not accept the gospel. The gospel's the greatest thing ever. You don't have to do anything. You just have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Why can't you see this, you crazy person? Do you get mad at them? Do you get angry because they're unresponsive? Jesus didn't. He accepted the fact that they were living like sheep without a shepherd. They needed guidance and they were not receiving it. And he knows that God sent him to that place at that point in time to be that shepherd to that congregation. So, what happens? He teaches them many things. I made this comment last week. Wouldn't you love to have the CD of this sermon? Wouldn't you just love to have a handful of those? Oh, well. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. They had made it to the desolate place, but it was full of people. This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Okay, so you're sitting there with a large crowd of people. In a moment, we'll see it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 people. And he's out there teaching. The sun begins to set and the disciples are sitting over there looking at their watch. Okay, we missed lunch. That's gone. We're approaching dinner time. And guess what? I haven't eaten. And if I haven't eaten, they haven't eaten. Remember, these people were running along the seashore. This wasn't a planned meeting. This wasn't a, oh, we're going to go see Jesus next week. Let's pack a lunch. 
They just grabbed their stuff and went. And in fact, in a moment, if we get to the end of the chapter, we'll see they were grabbing the sick people and carrying them. Okay? So the disciples are doing the smart thing. They're worrying about the well-being of these people. I have a horrible confession to make, by the way. I told you my wife left. She left town on Thursday because the wedding rehearsal was on Thursday. And it dawned on me last night, nobody's feeding the dog. <laughs> Poor dog. I fed the dog. The disciples are better than I am. At least they're aware that these people are hungry. Why are they aware that the people are hungry? Because they're hungry. They're probably also irritated because their nice retreat got interrupted by a crowd of people. So they're encouraging to Jesus, get rid of the crowd. Tell them to go away. They're bugging us. So what are they going to do? You're going to call up the local catering service and say, bring me food for 15,000 people now? No. You're going to send them to the communities that they came from and hope that somebody has enough bread left at the end of the day to feed them. This is not an unreasonable thing for the disciples to say. This is a good Martha comment. We've got to feed these people. Jesus, don't you care? Where were we? But he, Jesus, answered them, you give them something to eat. Now, you're one of the disciples. What is your response? You start looking around. Are you nuts? Do we look like we have backpacks full of Big Macs? Well, what, what, what are you saying? You're telling us to feed 15,000 people? Jesus, you're crazy. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? I read an old uh, commentary, and he was trying to go through the math to figure out how much bread you could buy with 200 denarii. And he finally concluded, we have no idea, okay? As a rule of thumb, a denarii is about one day's wages for a day laborer. You know, you're going out to, to pick in the vineyard, you're hired on for the day, a denarii's about one day's worth of labor. So the question that I have is, do they have 200 denarii? I mean, they did have a community purse. Judas was in charge of it. That's a whole different story there. So they did have some money, but they turned to Jesus and said, do you want us to go and take 200 denarii and buy enough food to feed all these people? Once again, this is not an unreasonable comment on their part. What are you talking about, Jesus? What do you really want us to do? How in the world are we going to 
feed them. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five loaves and two fish. Now, Mark, we've had this discussion before. Mark is a very concise gospel. Mark doesn't tell us that they had to steal those. I mean, borrow them from a young kid. Some kid's mother at least was smart enough to pack a lunch. The only smart person in this whole story. So one kid had five probably small loaves, and as one of the versions says, they were barley loaves, which would have been the cheapest bread there was, and probably not the best. Five barley loaves and two small fish. They came to Jesus and said, this is what we got. And Jesus says, he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Now, you're one of the disciples and you're sitting here. Jesus told us, divide up the crowd. We're going to eat dinner. 15,000 people, five loaves of bread. We break them into pieces. Everybody gets, do the math, not much bread. That's what we're going to have for dinner. Remember, the disciples are hungry too. They want the loaves themselves. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and of the fish. And, these, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So 5,000 men, 5,000 women, 5 to 10,000 kids. You're talking a crowd of people. Now, we have heard this story a bunch of times. But let's think about it for a moment. I'm Jesus, I'm not Jesus, I'm Jesus sitting here and I have this piece of bread. And I start breaking off pieces. And I said, here, disciples, take this, take more, take more. And they start handing out bread. And I keep breaking off pieces. I keep breaking off pieces. I keep breaking off pieces. And the disciples are sitting there going, where in the world is all this bread coming from? But you know what? Jesus told them to hand it out, and they handed it out. And everybody was fed until they were full. Everyone had an abundance to eat. Now, I have heard it speculated that what really happened was Jesus was sitting at the mouth of a cave, and as he was breaking the bread, somebody behind him was shoving extra loaves to him. And this is how he did it. Because let's face it, you and I don't make bread out of nothing. But there is someone in this universe who does make bread out of nothing. Who makes everything out of nothing, who created 
all that exists out of nothing. And that person is God, and the Son of God is Jesus, who is God. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and by the Word, everything came into existence. Now, here's the story. Sitting right there was the guy who spoke the world into existence. Don't you think he can make a little bread? When Satan was tempting Jesus, he said, Jesus, turn those rocks into bread. It never entered Satan's mind that Jesus couldn't do that. Of course Jesus could do that. Satan knew that. But the disciples didn't know that. They are beginning well, not very well, as we're going to see in just a moment, to understand there's something different about this guy. Remember, Mark, verse 1 of chapter 1. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God. Now, what is the lesson that we are supposed to learn from the fact that Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Well, the crowd is going to learn a lesson. The crowd is going to learn the lesson, Jesus will feed us. Jesus will feed us. Jesus will take care of our material needs until the persecution starts and those crowds run away. Is the lesson here that God is going to feed us all the time? Well, the Sermon on the Mount tells us. Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? Don't you see the birds and the flowers? God takes care of those. God will take care of you. God will take care of you. Our general problem is we don't want bread and fish. We want tacos. We want more. But that's a different story. We won't go there. So the lesson could be that Jesus is going to feed us anytime we want. Jesus is going to meet our every physical need. And then when that doesn't happen, we get frustrated and we walk away. In the story, the Grand Inquisitor, which is in the story, the Brothers Karamazov, the... Grand Inquisitor, the person running the Inquisition in Spain, is talking with Jesus. And he's chastising Jesus. He's angry at Jesus. Don't you know that if you had just continued to feed the people, they would have followed you forever? Don't you know that you had the opportunity and you muffed it? That's my translation. But that wasn't why Jesus was here. In the same way that Jesus performed miracles of healing, that was to validate who he was so we would understand what salvation means. So we know that he could feed any number of people. But we also know that he is 
something different than just another human being. This entire book is written to demonstrate that he is the Son of God. I don't know about you, but there are lots of people in this country who are wealthy enough to pull out their credit card and feed 20,000 people. And that's good and that's noble. God has given them the resources. That's great. But there's no one in this world who can just create food. But Jesus can. More about this in just a second. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. This is the comment that we made earlier. Jesus, the Son of God, still has a human body, and he still needs to communicate with the Father. If he has this problem, don't you think we have it, the need even more? And he saw that they were making headway painfully. It's like he's sitting up on this hill and he looks out onto the lake and he sees the boat. I guess I assume the boat has a light in it or something. Maybe Jesus has really good vision. I think so. The Sea of Galilee is, I don't know, six miles across. So they're out there not making much progress because there's a storm coming up. The wind is blowing against them. They are rowing hard and they can't get anywhere at all. I went canoeing one time with one of my sons, some father-son thing, and I'm sitting in the back of the canoe, heavy, and my son is sitting in the front of the canoe, doesn't weigh anything, and this canoe is riding like this. And every time we try to go forward, the wind, I'm a sail. I'm going like this. And some very intelligent person, not me, says, put a big rock in the front of the boat. And that, it worked, great. They're trying to get across the sea and it's not working very well. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, that's uh, three to 6 a.m. in the morning, gives you some idea of how long he was praying. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now, remember a while ago I was talking about their logical discussion about what to do about the food? This is a perfectly logical thing to do. It's night. It's way night. And you're out on a boat. That may be a stupid thing to do, but you're out on a boat. There's probably some lightning going on. I don't know. And you look out there, and there is some dude walking on the water. What is your first thought going to be? This is a bad horror movie. Something is wrong. Now, I told you the last time we talked about one of these similar stories, that in my strange mind, I have, I have this question that I want to know the answer to. Okay, you have these huge waves. Is Jesus walking up and down the waves? Or is he just kind of walking straight through them? I don't know. It's kind of irrelevant to the story. I do have an opinion, though, 
I don't think there was any storm where Jesus was. Just saying. So they see him and they are scared to death. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, I don't know about you. I would enjoy the fact that I knew the guy walking on the water. I would still be terrified. What are you doing out in the water, walking on top of the water? Now, once again, you can read ideas that he really wasn't walking on the water. He was on the shore, walking along beside them, going, hi, how are you all doing? No, he was walking on the water. Now, it is interesting what's not in this story. What's not in this story? Come on, you know the story. Peter! If you read this story in one of the other Gospels, it relates the fact that Peter said, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come on out. And you know how well that ended. Well, we know, remember, that the book of Mark is written by John Mark, who was the disciple of Peter. And Peter is not the center of this story. Peter doesn't want you thinking of Peter. Peter wants you thinking of Jesus. So it's not here. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean they contradict each other. It just means that Peter left that part of the story out on purpose. That's okay. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. This is the second time that Jesus has seen this happen. I mean, that the disciples have seen this happen. Jesus tells the storm to stop, and it stops. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And they were utterly astounded. Duh. And here's the question. For they did not understand about the loaves. What? They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. You're Peter, and you're telling this story to John Mark. I know what I would do. I would highlight the fact that I hopped out of the boat and went to Jesus. I might neglect the fact that I took my eyes off Jesus and sank like a rock. Yeah, we won't mention that part. I might mention that when Jesus got in the boat, the storm stopped. And then I would say we all gave him a high five because this was really cool. But that's not what the story says. The story says their hearts were hardened. They did not have the faith they ought to have had. Given the events that had just occurred to them, they should have learned a lesson. What was the lesson? God is going to take care of them. God is going to feed them. God has control over nature itself. They did not think what Jesus had just done. What did they think about? Well, my belly is full. I got a meal out of this. Life is good. I am fat and 
happy. And they didn't realize that the lesson was not that God wants us to be fat and happy. The lesson was that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus can do that which they do not understand. The lesson was that Jesus is not just another guy. But you know what? I'm speculating because it doesn't really say why their hearts were hardened. I'm speculating they were happy about their meal and they were terrified of the storm. You see, the last time they had been in a storm, Jesus was in the boat. Remember? He was asleep. That ticked them off. They woke him up, and Jesus told the storm to stop. The last time he was in the boat, this time he wasn't in the boat. They're in a storm without Jesus. Remember our discussion about why Jesus sent them out two by two? Because he was preparing them for the eventual time when he would not be there. Guess what? They're in the boat without Jesus. And guess what? They lose faith. Their hearts are hardened. They do not understand what Jesus is capable of doing. They do not understand that they will not die until their work is complete. They're going to die. Every one of them is going to die. But after their work is complete. They did not understand the lesson of the loaves. What is the lesson of the loaves? That Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus can make do with whatever you have to offer. You got a couple of pieces of fish and a couple of loaves of bread? Great, come on, we'll take care of the rest. Whatever it is that you have, God, that Jesus will take that and use it to accomplish his purposes. Don't worry about that. But I don't have a, I know God will take care of that. He will. That is the lesson of the loaves. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to pay for our salvation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.